I mean, here just this was yesterday. They the guy who was outside of Kavanaugh's house, right? Mm-hmm. And who has a who had a dossier on? I don't know if it was him or another person had a dossier on Sotomayor at one point that they picked up. Those are very small, isolated, in theory examples. But as the system, you know, continues to crumble in the public's view, I think it is warranted to ask ourselves what happens now, right? Like that's a very natural, I think, question, and I, I don't have a good answer for it. But it does seem like we have we are increasing the tail risk for bad things to happen. Welcome to Deep Dive with me, Sean Fettig. I'm a political scientist, and I'm interested in how our government and our politicians influence our lives, but also how our personal stories influence our politics. In this podcast. I may focus on topics in the news, but this is not punditry. Instead, I dive deep into issues and stories with my guests behind the headlines, beyond the basic narrative that is often crafted by the media and our politicians, to help us better understand each other and why we think and feel the ways we do. As you may have noticed, I have spent quite a few episodes talking about democracy and the state of democracy in the United States. And to be honest, this is not limited to just the podcast. This has become something I spend more and more time talking about, reading about, researching, cross-cutting many areas of my life. And to that end, I recently had a conversation with a buddy of mine discussing what else American democracy, and something wasn't clicking in our conversation. I mean, we agreed generally and on principle, but we were also kind of talking past each other a bit. He was talking about democracy from the perspective of majority will and only majority will. If the majority wins and they get what they want, that's democracy. And that sounds about right. But I was talking about democracy from the perspective of, yes, majority will, but a will that reflects universal enfranchisement and specific outputs that people are treated fairly and humanely. There is a difference here that has profound impacts on how we expect our government to interact with us, its people. And it's got me wondering, are we all on the same page? Do we all define democracy the same way? And if not, does the difference matter in how we vote or what we expect the outputs of our government to be? And that led me to my guest today, Dr. Nick Davis, the principal investigator of the Democracy and Open Science Lab at the University of Alabama and one of the authors of the book, The Meanings of Democracy, How Americans Think About Democracy and Why It Matters. I want to say two things going into this episode. First, this was recorded during early days of the January 6th public hearings and before the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs overturning Roe v. Wade. And second, I was traveling when I conducted this interview, and as such, I didn't have my regular tools of the trade, so some of the audio, especially on my side, is messy. I apologize, but, you know, shit happens. Let's do a deep dive. Dr. Davis, thanks for being here. I'm, I'm really excited to chat with you. How are you? I'm good, thanks. You know, I think I want to start at the end, so spoiler alert. Okay. Do you think American democracy is under threat, and if not then what's all this alarmism in our public square and in our media? And if so, in what ways? Well, I think it's a question that uh, there are lots of global scientists wrestling with. Um, One of the strange 
parts about trying to answer this question is that it sort of presumes that there was a period of time in which American democracy wasn't under threat. Hmm. So um, if we rewind the tape a little bit, I think it's easy for us to sort of lull ourselves into the sense that, uh, well, by lots of uh, academic measures, the United States has been a, a highly functional democracy for the better part of the you know the 20th century. And it's really not until the 60s, you know, with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, that uh, the U.S. actually managed full enfranchisement, which is a, mm-hmm. a basic <laughs> condition for uh, a full democracy. And so, to the extent that uh, the United States has been a functional democracy from the 60s to the present, boy, there are just also a lot of there's just a lot of unrest throughout that period as well, too. And so, it's it is always curious to me when I get asked this question um, how we tend to. Um, this is this is not directed towards you, but but mm-hmm. kind of a global we we tend to memory hold a lot of pretty significant dysfunction that has occurred over the last fifty or sixty years um, domestically. At present, it does seem like um, American democracy is under, uh, if not a qualitatively new threat, uh, at least a more acute one. You know that there are a bunch of different, you know, social and institutional dynamics that have. Uh, that have that all seem to be quickly accelerating the sense that represent there's a you know a basic problem with representation in our institutions. Um, we have one party that appears uh, to not uh, care a whole lot uh, about uh, following uh, some of the the rules on the book, if not if not in practice and spirit, right? And of course, today being you know um, uh, yet another day in the, the January sixth commissions public hearings, uh, you've got a, an insurrection that occurred, uh, you know, a little over over a year ago. So yeah, I think if, you know, taking a, a broad view of where we've come from relative to where we're, we're at currently, it is true that we have become more democratic as a country over time, right? Like the, the system of Jim Crow that uh, characterized the, the, the old South um, was repealed. And yet, I think that uh, the system is for sure straining under the weight of a lot of of policies and actors that are not necessarily interested in, in some pretty basic democratic principles. So yeah, I think I think the alarm the alarmism is well founded. I think uh, you don't have to look very far into our recent past to to see some things that ought to to, to concern you. And so in that sense, um, yeah, I. I I, I am concerned and remain concerned. I think um, about uh, where American democracy is is headed over the next uh, over the next year for sure. Tell me if you think this is a fair characterization. So historically, so we have this. Our, our democracy is built on a hegemonic system, and historically, uh, the powerful have had total enfranchisement. And what you're referencing here, you know, as, as if we're, if, you know, a true measure of democracy in the United States, anyway. People might really have moved into some safe space in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And that's because people that are traditionally, at least politically, powerless gained enfranchisement, right? Sure. And so I'm wondering if maybe what's a bit more threatening now is that this is much, this seems much more quote unquote political in that it's not race or gender that we're talking about here. We're really talking about who has access to power in the democracy based on the party that you're in. Yeah. And that can also threaten the powerful, 
right? There are, I mean, to put it bluntly, there are powerful Democrats that have, you know, a history of enfranchisement sure. and are now grappling with the fact that maybe by by virtue of being a Democrat, they don't, right? And, I, and I'm sure on the Republican side, some folks would make the argument, um, you know, if they, if, they, if they believe that, you know, there is widespread voter fraud, that the same applies to them, right? And I'm wondering if that's maybe what's happening. Is the powerful feel threatened now? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, it always strikes me as curious that uh, when you look at the sort of behavior of elites, right, like in Congress, you do have this sense of precariousness, maybe, uh, even like among Democrats that wasn't previously there, right? So this idea that, I mean, you're Dianne Feinsteins of the world, right? Um, and you're, you're, you're Pelosi's. These are, these are people who are both, I mean, even, even Joe Biden. These are people who are old, who have been socialized into a system that no longer really exists. Uh, and, and so they are, I think, sort of finally coming to terms that mm-hmm. there are threats. And so it takes a long time to wake folks like that up, if, if, particularly when their fundamental socializing experiences with an institution happened during the glory days of that institution, right? I mean, you know, Pelosi, Biden, and the other old, old folks, right, who are still working in government, they began their careers sort of at a a moment of really democratic revitalization, right? It was the second reconstruction. And uh, I wonder if now seeing some of these things slowly unfold, I I, I do think that they sort of realize that, oh, wow, okay, now maybe something is is amiss. Um, But what's curious to me is that it's not, it doesn't seem more... Uh, pressing to them, and if it and if it does seem pressing, then the problem is not necessarily substance, but message, right? Well, we just have to fine tune mm-hmm. this message, and then we have to fine tune how we how we talk about these things. Where I think average voters is looking at this and saying, like, what are you talking about the message? Like, like sub- mm-hmm. substantively, there's something very very wrong here, um, and so there does seem to be a bit of a disconnect, I think, in that sense. Norms are particularly important to the basic functioning of government, and. Specific to American democracy, you know, some examples of norms might be, you know, an understanding or an acceptance that both of the major parties are legitimately in pursuit of governing, that they're not enemies of the state or enemies of the people, that losers accept the outcomes of elections, that it to put it in space that we're all very familiar with is the things like the Supreme Court, you know, when there are vacancies that, you know, the Senate accepts nominations and at minimum considers those uh, nominations. And you've done some work in norm breaking and how this is perceived and quote unquote punished by each of the major parties in the United States, that's Democrats and Republicans. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your findings and where the elites in each of these parties might differ on how they handle norm breaking and maybe also why that's important. Yeah. Well, let's, let's start with why it's important first, and then we'll maybe talk about um, some of the things that we've, we've found. So uh, a system governed by norms is never uh, as good as a system governed by sort of hard and fast rules, right? Like mm-hmm. legal codes. Legal codes are really important. And the fact of the matter is, you, it's very difficult to write constitutions that fill in all of the gaps for everything that people are going to do, right? It's very difficult if you've ever written rules for, uh, uh, for a fictional game, much less trying to construct rules to govern a, a multiracial democracy, right? Uh, that is going that rules that are going to cover every specific instance. And so norms fill in those gaps where there maybe aren't legal rules, but there are social expectations for how, you know, people should behave. And it would probably be a mistake to say that there is no norm breaking or that the norm breaking of the last four years is is, you know, has no uh, no sort of correlate in history. I mean, norms have always been broken. And sometimes norms are broken for normatively <laughs> appropriate reasons, right? <laughs> 
and and that's important to keep in mind too. But I think when we're talking about norm breaking, we're talking about like well-established principles of um, how people ought to behave in given circumstances, right? So, for instance, um, we did uh, we we looked at well, what happened when one thing that got some press early in Biden's presidency uh, was his uh, one of the uh, associate press secretaries, right? E.J. Ducklow uh, got, really got on a reporter for asking him a question about his romantic life. And he uh, said, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase here, that, you know, I'm going to, if you ask, if you report on this, I'm going to destroy you, right? And, and there was some sexist stuff in there too. And it just, it was a really, really bad look. Well, that, that, that's a norm violation, right? Like we should treat people with respect, particularly when you are working for the government, you're on the record. And so what we found is that people respond to that episode in some interesting ways, right? So the Biden administration very quickly said, hey, this wasn't okay. And Biden was very clear that his, his administration would behave in a, in a morally upright manner. Like he was very, very clear about this to the point of like going on, uh, on in, in interviews saying that like, we will fire people who act in inappropriate ways. Mm-hmm. Well, Logan can. And so we put this to survey respondents. We ran a little experiment and we, uh, we supplied people with some different examples of that story. And what we found is that when, when elites hold themselves accountable, people are a little more likely to believe that norm breaking, uh, that, that consequences for norm breaking are appropriate. The interesting thing is that nearly everyone agrees that people ought to be punished when they do wrong, when they do bad things. There's, there's a very deeply ingrained in the American psyche. And maybe this is a human tendency more broadly that when people behave badly, they ought to be punished, right? Mm -hmm. Those punitive norms are part of the reason our criminal justice system is the way it is, right? Like we just have a, a very strong tendency to punitively punish people when they do wrong. So when we ask respondents, Hey, uh, after this little episode, we said, hey, you know, if, if somebody does something wrong, you know, do they deserve to be punished? And we found that there were no differences in those attitudes across conditions, like irrespective of whether TJ was, was uh, fired or not, right? Um, but what we did find is the agreement that he specifically should be punished was always higher, even for Republicans, when an elite actually held, them, held him accountable. Hmm. And, so, and so what we, what we, what we think in general across uh, several studies that we've that we've done both uh, myself and my one of my grad students Drew Cagle um, is that norms erode when they are not upheld, and so they don't. You know, norms are only as good as the sanctions that are uh, not only the sanctions but the willingness of other strategic actors to, to hold people accountable. And so, when you have lots of bad behavior, no one is ever punished. Then it has a general uh, effect of making people think that punishment for those wrongdoing. Uh, is maybe not warranted. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that is one of the dangers of norm breaking in a vacuum without uh, kind of uh, associated punishment. So you mentioned the message of elites, and you also talk about this in your book, Democracy's Meanings, How the Public Understands Democracy and Why It Matters. And correct me if I'm char- mischaracterizing this, but you argue that the definition of democracy, or at least the American definition anyway, is uh, ambiguous or unclear one. And then two, it's different across Democrat and Republican elites, which, you know, as messengers, they then inform the public, their their respective audiences. And that this creates a schism in the public's understanding of what to expect from their democracy or even what democracy is. And so I guess I've got a couple of questions for you here. Um, So bear with me. Uh, I'll give them to you first. So one, I guess I'm wondering, 
what is democracy? Is it is it is it measured by free and fair elections and their outcomes full stop? Or is there something more substantive and outcome and output related that matters here? And then I guess secondly is, you know, if democracy is conceptualized as about elections or about the process, then what can we expect from a government that's wholly designed around that? And in contrast to that, if democracy is conceptualized as being substantive and output related, then what does that democracy look like? All right, good questions. Uh, in the minds of the public, when you ask them, you know, the things that are essential to democracy, uh, the stuff that immediately pops out is process-based. And so uh, the average American tends to associate free and fair elections, rights, and freedoms with democracy. And that sounds nice. But your second question, I think, hints at a problem with this, which is that it is completely detached from substantive outcomes, right? And so when you think about what is freedom, what is equality, how do we put meat on the bones of these, um, we call them civil or political goods? When you actually start specifying, hey, should, what, how, did, how should this look substantively, materially, what sort of conditions should citizens expect in democracy? I think then it becomes very difficult to say, well, democracy is only a system of processes, right? You can have a system of processes that can be more or less fair. I mean, Russia has elections, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. not a functional democracy. It's an anocracy. Right? It's, it's a semi-authoritarian country. And yet they have elections, right? Um, are they free? Uh, well, they're for the most part free, but are they fair? Well, no, right? And so I think that um, one of the dangers in defining, de- like the defining democracy in this sort of liberal framework, which is primarily about inputs and very li- with very little attention being paid to outputs, is that it it kind of creates a, a hollow sense of what democracy is, right? And so it it really narrows, I think, our our imagination for what democracy can create. And so one of the things we talk about in the book is Obama gives this really weird after he's out of office, gives this, this very strange speech at Nelson Mandela's, what would have been his 100th birthday. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about economic democracy. And like, with all due respect to the, the past president, he, he is not someone I would uh, put on a you know, pedestal of, of sort of social Democrats, right? Like he's very, very pragmatic. And he's talking about like how democracy is, is very closely, uh, like, like you will know the, the nature and the character of a democracy by the material conditions it produces. And it's this fascinating speech because you assume that this is probably what he has thought for the past eight years, but has not been able to say because of the, the general political uh, constraints that uh, govern how a, you know, a democratic president uh, can talk about so these, these sorts of things. But it was a very fascinating a definition of democracy because it grappled with this idea that democracy that doesn't produce equitable, you know, substantive outcomes. And so by substantive outcomes or material outcomes, we mean things like, like how much freedom do people have? Like, do women have uh, the freedom to make their own healthcare decisions? What is the level of, of poverty in a given state, right? Do people, uh, are they housed, right? Um, and so there are all sorts of welfare goods where democracy really falls pretty flat on its face if it does not produce these material conditions. And, and, and so historically, one of the things that political scientists have been really interested in is trying to demonstrate empirically, well, yes, democracy produces far better outcomes for societies than, than you know, authoritarianism. And what's odd is that that has really not filtered into how the average American thinks about democracy, which is mostly input-based. Do you see a difference in how Democrats and Republicans, and by here, I mean the engaged public, yeah. conceptualize democracy? 
Well, so what we found is that partisanship is not a super good predictor of um, the different composite views that people have towards democracy. In fact, it seems to be the case that ideology, like whether you are a leftist or someone who associates with the right, that that does a little bit better job of predicting whether you prefer an expansion, uh, like an expansive view of democracy. We we kind of cheekily called it social democracy in the book, but you know, in the United States, that. That doesn't have a ton of meaning, right, relative mm-hmm. to the Nordic democracies. But then we called um, folks with a more right-leaning view of democracy, we call those uh, minimal views of democracy. So, so just about processes, right? And so, yeah, there are some differences among folks on the left and the right. But what's fascinating is that views about individualism and meritocracy are really deeply baked into the psyche. And so it doesn't seem to be the case that like when you look at the distribution of a little scale that of, of that roughly approximates kind of individualism, well, even among people who, uh, I, who, who we can sort of statistically identify as being proponents of a social vision of democracy, individualism is like normally distributed. It's not like these are like crazy, uh, these are statists, these are people who don't believe in the value of, of individual hard work or whatever. And so where these views differ, I mean, that, that is such a, a basic part of the American psyche that where these views really seem to differ is, is the, the role that people believe the government ought to play in setting some of the material conditions that, that structure how democracy gets worked out. And so, yeah, there are some left-right differences, but it, it doesn't, it kind of imperfectly maps to that. Oh, let me, let me, sorry, let me, let me just wrap up that, wrap that idea, try to put a bow on it because modal preference in a, in among everyone that we've, we've surveyed, we had several thousand respondents and the average person believes that democracy should be doing more, you know, as far as delivering welfare goods. That's the ironic part is that the modal preference is not for this list, uh, minimalistic liberal democracy. It's actually for democracy that does more to ensure that people have basic necessities and that levels of economic inequality are not are not rampant. So I want to focus on one of these processes, and I suppose the the associated outcomes, and that's the the American electoral process. Sure. And so, in in, in many ways, the design of this process, an argument can be made, can be increasingly difficult for some folks to accept based on the outcomes that we're, you know, I guess, forced to accept. And maybe an argument would be that this is especially difficult for Democrats. And some examples here might include gerrymandering. Yeah. You know, the ability of states to create their own voting laws, which means that we have, you know, 50 different sets of disparate patchwork of rights related to voting, the uh, apportionment in the Senate and the Electoral College. And I always phrase this as, you know, that the, the way the system of design conspires to keep contemporary Democrats anyway. Yeah. in the minority, yep. even when they command a majority vote share. And so a, a couple of questions I have here is one, what is it that Republicans are so angry about? And then two, I guess I, I you know, I, I do want to hone in a bit on your research because you do, you do focus on a, a bit on how democracy can or cannot function in America with an increasingly multiracial electorate. And you touched a bit on this earlier, but I guess I'm wondering what your findings on there are there. And if the Democratic Party is increasingly becoming the home of, you know, racial diversity and the Republican Party is becoming the home of white voters with the caveat that the Latino vote seems a bit unsettled here as it relates to where their home is. No, that's right. What does this then pretend for, you know, our politics and our democracy? It is curious to me that when you look at least recently, so let's say the last, you know, two election cycles, 
despite uh, Democrats winning narrow majorities in, well, uh, I sort of tongue-in-cheek called a majority in the Senate, but despite them having a narrow majority there in the presidency and and the House by, by a little bit of a margin, at the state level where politics gets worked out in practice, Republicans are just runaway winners here. I mean, the amount of success that they have had in transforming the subnational judiciary is remarkable. Um, I mean, like you look at states like Wisconsin, Georgia to some extent, Texas, of course, they have done quite well. And so uh, I think that the 2020 election is kind of a weird aberration. Um, if you don't have if you don't have a Donald Trump, um, I know wild hypothetical, but um, you know they're they're doing all, all all things considered quite well. I mean they have. They have a partisan backstop now, Democrats, sorry, Republicans in the court, I mean, by a six to three margin, right? And so when you think about the temperature in the room and the amount of anger uh, that's out there, it is curious how sustained uh, Republican antagonism towards government has been despite that level of success. And so I personally find it fascinating, you know, moving into this next election cycle where the the national prospects of Democrats are, are for sure bleaker than they are now, whether this sense of aggrievedness as, as being the out party, right, will sustain them and how long that will sustain them. Because it does seem to be the case that as the country sort of slowly becomes more diverse or, you know, maybe to put it another way, as, as white voters shift to the plural group rather than the majority group per se like what will happen moving forward i don't know it you know there is a um so to touch just briefly on some work i did with steve miller you know people who hold uh social prejudice do not seem to like democracy very much and so we're actually working on a book project right now where we're trying to get at this in a little bit we, you know, we looked at some very crude measures of support for democracy, um, and so we're, we're trying to sharpen some of these distinctions to find out pe- whether or not people who, you know, have high levels of social prejudice uh, tend to uh, dislike democracy. But we're curious, like, okay, well, like, what are the limits of that? And so we, you know, I don't, I don't know, but it does seem to be the case that certainly there is a heightened sense that I mean, you know, the the panic over critical race theory over the last six months, right? would seem to suggest that uh, there is some, you know, great conspiracy out there where we're trying to, uh, you know, tell young children, you know, how terrible they are. Or something. Um, and so it is really curious how those, those narratives all kind of coalesce into this, this massive campaign of, of grievances. And so you have to wonder uh, when, the Democratic, when the Democratic Party um, uh, takes, uh, you know, a bit of a uh, drumming on the chin in, in 2022, which I, I assume is going to happen. I don't know. But if they do, and Republicans are able to do better if sure in the House, we'll see what happens in the Senate. Um, will that aggrievedness be sustained? I, I don't know. I have no idea. I, I suspect so. I mean, it, it seems like uh, you don't need to have objective material conditions in order to uh, generate a certain amount of aggrievedness because it's, it's largely perceptual and subjective, which is, which is probably part of the problem. It does strike me as a bit of a, a conundrum for the Republican Party in the future in that I think, to me, some of this feels like it's an artifact of the Republican. I don't know if it's platform or story, right? Like shrinking the size of government, that government is inefficient. And without getting into, you know, who's responsible for that, you know, it almost feels as if that's an artifact 
that is now going to play against the fact that they are increasingly in positions to completely command that federal government. Yeah, that's right. Well, and and in a world where uh, some amount of government, it seems, is is going to be necessary to combat large scale social, you know, uh, social and collective action problems, right? Like climate change, and I mean it. <laughs> When you're, it's 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 fun being uh, the dog chasing the car until the dog catches the car, and then what happens, right? Mm-hmm. Like the something that has sustained the Republican Party over the last thirty or forty years um, has been this opposition to Roe v. Wade, um, and so that decision is coming sometime here in June. And when it finally happens, uh, you know, most uh, commentators and experts suggest that you know this will it will be overturned and and kicked back to the states. You, the, the dog has caught the car now. So now what, right? Like, what do you complain about now that you have gotten everything that you wanted? And so you do sort of wonder long-term if this doesn't kind of come back to bite you. Because the thing that you have said doesn't work and that is, is, is you know, and, and should look different. When you're, now you're in control. Will people punish you for that? Or will they agree that uh, it's so irreparably bro- broken that you're, you know, kind of making do with what you've got? I, I don't know. It, it seems it's a very kind of funny, self-fulfilling prophecy in some sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you brought up the Supreme Court. So let's just stick with that. Let's talk about the Supreme Court for a bit. And, you know, kind of given the spotlight that the court is about to command, and I suppose uh, somewhat accidentally so in the last month, yeah, you know, the court has so since the leaked Dob, Dobbs opinion, the or at least the uh, initial opinion, the court has experienced a significant slide in public opinion. So yep. um, Marquette poll has them at about forty four percent favorability, and I think that might be the first time in recorded memory that they're below that they're underwater. Yeah, yeah. And so judicial scholars have argued for years that its processes. Uh, related to the judiciary that have been largely responsible for constructing the court's legitimacy and the public support that it receives. And that's things like the fact that they're considered independent, that issues are given a fair review, that they're nonpartisan. So I guess in your, uh, my question is in your opinion, what's happening here? And is it, is it the leak that's impacting the court's legitimacy or is it the substance of the leak that's impacting the legitimacy? And then what 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 does it mean if all three institutions are underwater? Good questions. Yeah, the academic literature on this is is odd. Um, in my view, I'm not a, I'm not an institutionalist, but I, this is the one area of uh, of institutions that I find to be the most fascinating. And I've done a little research on uh, institutional support, and what I suspect is going on is historically it's it's been normative to talk about the Oh, the the sort of procedural fairness and the trappings of our institutions as being the thing that sort of drives support for them, and mm-hmm. frequently, you know, reference Bush v. Gore uh, in two thousand, right? As you know, uh, it was important that everyone saw that the Supreme Court did this, uh, made their decision in a way that was upright and forthright, and yada yada. But what's what's interesting about about even that is that the Democratic outrage over that particular situation was relatively muted. I'm trying to imagine that happening again today. And I was just a kid at the time, but like, I I mean, it's not that the Democrats folded, but they just sort of said, okay, all right, fine, next. And I just, I can't imagine that would happen today. And so I, I wonder sometimes whether this distinction between substance and process 
is something of a anachronism that like today process and substance have sort of collapsed on each other because nothing gets done right and so it could be the case that uh this leak is in part responsible for you know the supreme court's slide but i suspect that that the leak has much less with this than the substance of the actual decision, which was, frankly, I'm not a legal expert, but having read through it and, and read a bunch of commentary on it, kind of batshit crazy. I mean, like mm-hmm. the actual decision itself, it's going to kick uh, an unpopular sort of perspective back to the state, which are not exactly bastions of uh, democratic efficiency. Uh, you mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast how the states all have, you know, uh, the, varying systems of, of rules regarding how voting works. So you're going to take a system that's increasingly antagonistic towards democratic inputs, uh, and you're going to make it responsible for setting policy that is very, very unpopular. And by that, I mean like total abortion bans, right? Or, or mm-hmm. the criminalization of abortion. It just, it polls terribly. And, and, and abortion polling is one of those things that it, you know, question wording matters a lot in context but like no matter how you slice it the very extremes on the question of abortion are just not popular nobody wants abortion on demand and nobody wants abortion to be wholly illegal and so i think that you know once that dobbs decision was leaked people sort of saw the writing on the wall and said boy this institution has it is it has gone a little off the rails and so i don't think the process matters so much as the substance and i suspect that there is there is also other political science research that has long questioned whether the uh, the idea that process matters has been kind of the hegemonic view in mm-hmm. political science, but it has not been without its detractors. And there's, frankly, in my opinion, a lot of gatekeeping that's gone on that has kept that view afloat. And I suspect that now that all of the institutions are severely underwater. This doesn't just happen because people think the process is crappy. It happens because people are tired of poor substantive outcomes, which kind of actually brings us full circle back to this idea that democracy is more than inputs. If the presidency is inefficient uh, and and uh, is you know guilty of lots of norm breaking, if Congress can't deliver material goods to the American people, and then the courts turn around and remove substantive rights from uh, a group of people boy those are those are a set of substantive outputs that are all very antagonistic towards uh the sort of moral nature of democracy and i think i think people notice this right and i know the public you know they are they don't have uh, they don't have excellent forms of ideology which is to say that like it's not like everyone is walking around with a policy walk but i i do genuinely believe that the average person sees that this is highly dysfunctional not just from an input standpoint, but from a set of outputs that just are not are not very good, and that they're just recognizing that that this is this is quite bad. And so the question, okay, well, then what happens when all three institutions are underwater? That probably returns us to the very first question you asked, which is: Is democracy in crisis? And and that is probably a pretty good indicator that it is, right? If all of your democratic institutions are effectively underwater, net, and when you you know split this out by partisans. Uh, partisans and independents alike are pretty negative, then you have a, a public that really seems to not trust uh, its public institutions. And, and that's always a recipe for, uh, you know, that's, that's a powder keg. It's really hard to know mm-hmm. when the powder keg blows, right? Like, and so anybody who's saying, you know, well, violence is going to increase, maybe, maybe not, you know, uh, you're going to see democratic collapse. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know, but it certainly it removes this the tail risk inflation 
outcomes, which is just a fancy way of saying that bad outcomes become more likely under these conditions. So I have two, two thoughts. I don't know if they're questions, but you can take them as questions. So the, the, the first is, I also have this critical kind of view of what I think legitimists would call long-term legitimacy of the Supreme yeah. Court. So that's, you know, like in, in legitimacy of the institution versus the outcome. Sure. And I feel like the framing of the leak as being such a body blow to the court because they have, you can count on one hand the number of times that something like a leak has happened, sure. that the court is, has, you know, had such discipline in how it talks about itself as an institution and each other and the, the opinions uh, that this is such a breach of decorum, that that framing, what they're really talking about is institutional support, long-term support for the mm-hmm. institution, right? And that, you know, this leak is doing damage to the institutional support. And then, of course, the other story here is the substance of the leak. So what they're actually doing in this opinion. That's right. And I think what's gotten kind of convoluted or conflated here is this conversation, like separating out the two yes. and saying one is about long-term legitimacy and one is about short-term. Yep. And I mean, I guess I'm just willing to say like, bullshit, I don't think that this is about long-term. I think this is about the substance of the leak and what's in that opinion. And that that does, that that typical short-term measure is actually doing long-term institutional damage to the court. Yeah, I, I, tend, to, I tend to think that's right. This isn't some garden variety case that's going to manage whether or not the FEC can go after businesses for you know giving you salmonella. Like that's an important case, right? I forget the name. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, this is something over the last, I don't know, last six months, eight months. This is like quite literally about a very fundamental, a, a, an activity or, or a behavior that is that has been associated with being a core right to citizens living in democracy. You're going to walk that back. And I think people note, note that this is, this is kind of bullshit, right? Like this is not just about like, well, you know, leak happened and well, we, that kind of sucks. Somebody should, they talked out of turn. No, I mean, anytime someone talks about the leak, it's always about the substantive implications of it, right? And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, it, nobody leaves their conversation with, hey, man, can you believe how, how you know, the loose lips of the kids working over there as interns at the Supreme Court? No, they, the first thing you leave with is, holy shit, did you hear what Dobbs is? They're going to, oh, they're going to literally overturn Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. And so I think you're right. And, and I think that short term dissatisfaction over substance, I think it's always really, I mean, there's a you're probably familiar, you know. David Easton is the is sort of the considered the father of of the, uh, the idea of institutional support yeah. in, in its dynamics, right? There's specific short run support, and then there's long term institutional support. Diffuse, diffuse support, and and poor Easton gets so misread because we we parse these two things from each other as if they're, it's possible. We're all good Bayesians, which is which is just a, a way of saying uh, we all update our opinions, and we do this simultaneously, right? I, I, you know, I meet Molly on the, the the street. We become friends. Molly mistreats me over a series of occasions, and eventually, I say, I don't really like Molly. I don't want to be friends with her anymore. Yeah. I mean, it would be it would be insane to think that short term perturbations in support, you know. That that have massive implications for a, a democratic system in the long run wouldn't negatively impact long term support. I just I think it's a crazy idea, and yet you'll get a lot of political scientists who will say, "No, I think it. You know, I think it's it's mostly process." And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I just I wonder how that sustains some of the discourse around this, right? Like I sometimes wonder, like have have academics kind of sustained this like 
sense of legitimacy where one isn't warranted, you know, like how, what, what responsibility do we bear here? Because mm-hmm. it's crazy. Yeah. I feel like this entire conversation about the, like the, the impact of just the leak itself is really limited to, you know, inside players and, you know, people that are knowledgeable about the process, but people, yeah, I, I agree with you. People on the street are not, you know, like, can you believe the court leaked an opinion? No, not at all. But I mean, I think maybe another way to think about this is, and, and I, this is what you were alluding to here, is that, you know, legitimacy is maybe better conceptualized as like a pool of, you know, like you build it up, you put something in. Sure. And, you know, if you give if you give somebody what they want, you've built a little bit of legitimacy, you fill that pot and you've got a lot of legitimacy. And then occasionally you take out of it. Right. Like maybe, you know, um, like you said, Molly, maybe Molly doesn't show up for your point. Well, well, OK, she's taken something out of that pot of trust or legitimacy. And I feel like the court has just taken quite a bit out of that pot lately. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, you, you, you go back over too many years here and we've got Citizens United. We've got we've got this, we've got, uh, this recent ruling that, uh, border patrol agents can just, you know, cavalier mm-hmm. waltz into your house. Ha- was this, was it yesterday? I think that they released yeah. it has big times like fourth amendment, I think, uh, yeah. implications like I, the, the court is, I mean, they are, they're going, uh, kind of ham on the old, uh, mm-hmm. of, of rights that Americans have. And, you know, at some point I think people do sort of become wise to this, this being a problem. The crazy part though, is that, um, Still, when you ask people whether we should expand the court or reform it, boy, is there a lot of hesitation to change something that that has fundamentally uh, looked and existed a, a certain way. You know, the expanding the court rarely receives more than probably forty percent support. Term limits for justices is usually above water. Like that's anywhere between fifty and seventy percent of Americans will agree that some amount of term limits would be healthy. And and we, we I, that question usually doesn't mean like you know well they get four year terms. I mean like you know so you setting them at twelve to fifteen year terms. Most Americans say yeah that's appropriate. And yeah, but it, but what's interesting to me is that there just hasn't been more appetite for for reform here from the public. And you know given the polarized nature of our you know, our legislative system without some amount of public consensus here, I don't, you know, it's unlikely to change. Mm -hmm. And so, and so what you find yourself waiting for, if you're a person with left-leaning preferences is you kind of become, there's this real macabre, uh, uh, institutional perspective, which is you're just waiting on people to die. (laughs) What a weird democracy that you orient your functional bureaucracy around a culture of death. Well, Mm -hmm. wait till they die. Not super healthy. Right. So I said I had two points. The second point that I was thinking about as you were answering the original question here is that, you know, with all three institutions underwater. And so I used to teach in American government and did research in American government. And one thing that I never did a lot of research in, but I was always a bit fascinated in was this idea of a revolution. And I don't in any way want to sound like an alarmist, but I have to imagine that when you have your three institutions of government, policymaking, lawmaking, oversight, accountability, enforcement, underwater, and trending in that direction, that at some point that that is at minimum an indicator in some index, that doesn't bode well for at minimum functional you know, government or democracy, but maybe at worst, maybe more violence. And I wonder if we're tiptoeing into that space and we're just so 
comfortable in you know our 250 years of relatives relative stability that we're just blind to this yeah i you know what i think doesn't help is our weird federal systems uh federalism creates all kinds of funny blinders and so i i when i teach intro to american government i always spend a long time on federalism i'm sure students are like can you just stop beating this to death but Mm -hmm. there's this idea that like if if you live in minnesota or you live in new york or connecticut delaware california your life probably over the next decade is probably not going to be a whole lot material different than it is now but if you live in places like texas and oklahoma and alabama florida (laughs) the quality of your life could look very different and so you do have to wonder, you know, uh, collective action problems uh, prevent people from coalescing into social movements. It's just very hard to get people on board to do anything. But what we saw after the murder of George Floyd was a, I, I use the term um, bizarre, but you could also say magnificent, blooming of, uh, uh, of a social movement that was relatively short-lived. But the prevalence and the number of marches in service of justice it blew up. And when you look at the map, when people track this, it was, it was astonishing how quickly this, this spread. I'm not sure if Americans have the same imagination for their democracy that they do for, uh, for, for cases like that. Hmm. But I expect that if something is going to change that, or if something, if, if bad outcomes do occur, it will be not necessarily in Washington, but in these states where people are pushed kind of to the end of their proverbial rope regarding the, the kind of the the way their behavior is is moderated by the state if that makes sense mm-hmm. there is you know violence to occur it it seems at least i would you know you know you, i'm not predicting when and where it'll happen but anytime your your federal government is viewed with such sort of distaste and you live in local conditions that are not great that seems like a recipe for local outbursts of suboptimal outcomes um, Mm -hmm. at most diplomatically and so you kind of wonder you know how long does it take people to get to that well i mean here just this was yesterday they the guy who was outside of kavanaugh's house right Mm -hmm. and who has a who had a dossier on i don't know if it was him or another person had a dossier on sotomayor at one point that they picked up those are very small isolated in theory examples but as the system you know continues to crumble in the public's view i think it is warranted to ask ourselves what happens now right like that's a very natural i think question and i i don't have a good answer for it but it does seem like we have we are increasing the tail risk for bad things to happen Mm. so on that note then I'm wondering, to me, it seems in, in a lot of ways, and, and this is what we've been talking about, is, you know, that we've kind of passed a Rubicon here. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering if, in your perspective, if there are any tangible things that could be done anymore to moderate our politics or to bring the temperature down, to make it more collegial or co- cooperative. And I think, you know, what I want to avoid is this... This this kind of basket of remedies that's often offered, which is you know like that we need to reinvest in our democratic ideals. You know we need to ensure access to the vote and um, reinvest in civics education, etc. But that requires like bipartisanship and responsible politicians, and I just don't think we have that anymore. So I don't think those are those are tangible or viable solutions. And so I guess my question is, 
what are some solutions or how do you fix this if we don't have the required bipartisanship that's necessary to actually implement the fixes or are we too far gone? I mean, like the, the reality here is the system is pretty ossified and you can't undo social sorting, right? Like, I don't know that, you know, there's an argument in, in academic political science about whether or not, you know, people sort into the places that, mm-hmm. which makes them red or blue. But the reality without, you know, commenting on causality, the reality is places that are red and places that are blue are likely not to change too much in the near future. And so if you are someone who would like to see change, the institutional options that are available to you, as you note, are nil. They're null. That set is non-existent. Mm-hmm. The only reasonable one I think that one could have hoped for would have been a revitalization of the Voting Rights Act that could have somehow gotten you know a mansion or cinema on board to try to federalize some protections for voting. Right? Um, I think that's the one small ball thing that that might have might have been useful to taking some sanity back uh, into the Democratic uh, input side that also seems like it's no longer an option. And so if you are someone who's an activist, it's, it's probably the case that you try to get involved in areas that, if you're on from the left, areas that uh, are traditionally red and trying to figure out ways to build um, coalitions with people who may disagree with you on several things, but where you find common ground on other things that are going to expand um, democracy at the local level, right? Local elections are, are low turnout events, right? And so. Um, and statewide elections are low turnout events. And so, you know, you're, you get a lot more bang for your buck trying to go down to the, you know, the double A league here and trying to work on finding common ground. But other than sort of trying to uh, encourage people not to despair, I'm, I'm a cynic on this front. I, I really do think that nationally uh, things are not going to change. They'll probably get slightly worse. I think climate change uh, has the potential to disrupt the current partisan mm-hmm. system. Um, you know, it, it, there is an argument that Americans are really only good at politics when there's a war to be had. Mm-hmm. So maybe, maybe that uh, cross-cuts basic partisan disagreements. But notwithstanding an exogenous shock, and by exogenous, right, that just means not, uh, notwithstanding an external shock mm-hmm. or system from the outside, I think we just, this thing continues to kind of spool itself out. I don't think we're anywhere near the bottom yet. Yeah, I agree. I wish that wasn't it, right? Like I wish there was a little silver lining to end on, but I really do feel like uh, life is still relatively comfortable for enough people in the United States that Mm -hmm. it is going to be very difficult to convince them to enact. I mean, what happened after George Floyd was murdered? We we paid police departments more than we've ever paid them in the history Mm -hmm. of Mm-hmm. And even people that even communities that cut them have reinvested. That's exactly right, Sean. That's exactly right. And so it's like I, <laughs> I mean that that is our one. If that's our one big recent example, I don't know. Geez, that doesn't inspire a lot of confidence that on some of this other stuff we're gonna, you know, we're gonna see change um, because the appetite for change is, is even so more minimal than than it was then. So mm-hmm. yeah, I guess I guess I'm a cynic, um, and you know. You just you hope that uh, people can get involved in ways that are meaningful locally to try to elect sane local officials, which is always our you know I think the the best bet against forestalling uh, crazy. But it's also like the lowest rung on the ladder, like sanity. So that, that's a good place to start. It's a good place to start, right? And that doesn't mean that you got to go run for office or whatever. Right. It just means to try to become involved on things that you care about. So like locally here in Tuscaloosa, we had on the on the uh, ballot here during the primary was funding for state parks. They were had a big old pot. I don't know if it was leftover federal monies from COVID or whatever. 
But like that park system, that helps everybody, right? That's actually a sneaky inside way of expanding the reach of the state. So go vote for that. And there were a lot of people on both sides of the aisle who I think probably voted for that. I mean, there are some there are some small things we can do that will make people's lives materially better. And I think we have to try to look for those things. But elites drive politics. And until enough elites come around, it's unclear to me that that linkage between the public and elites is strong enough in American politics today, given our institutions, to see these changes happen. Okay, one final question for you. Uh, what is something interesting that you've been reading, watching, listening to, and or doing lately? And it doesn't have to be related to this topic. Oh, man, this is going to be so depressing too, but I've been reading a ton about native, uh, the dispossession, the dispossession of native uh, and indigenous peoples. I'm working on a, a, a new book and there's a little set of case studies that we're looking at. And uh, I had to read a bunch of stuff about the period of time between the probably the late 17th century and the early 19th century about how the federal government went about disenfranchising, dislocating, and dispossessing native people. And it is a uh, sorry and sad. I know that we've gotten a little bit, I think, socially con- more conscious over the last maybe five or six years about some of those issues. I feel like like people are a little more like the word dispossession is at least like a part of the public lexicon, but there's just so much of that story that is nuanced and important and in- interesting. Like if you can call something that's very hard and sad, interesting, then it, it really is a f- kind of fascinating how it, it, it played out. Because the same level of like the race prejudice that Americans had towards African Americans, which is to view them as less than human, right, um, did not spill over to their interactions with Native Americans very early on. And there are a variety of reasons for this. And so anyways, I've been trying to read really smart people who have written on this. And um, it's just a, it's a fascinating kind of area of research that I, I, so that's way outside my wheelhouse. But I have, I have enjoyed that. On a less depressing note, <laughs> I have been catching up on uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. I'm a, I, I don't mind the prequels. I'm kind of a prequel guy. I think they're a little more... Mm-hmm. I actually, I, I truly, I enjoyed them when they came out, and I, I still like them better than the most recent three, mm. which are a hot mess. And I hope, you know, your listeners, they can write you and tell you how dumb I am about that. <laughs> they can write directly to you. Yeah, that's right. You just direct them to me. <laughs> I have actually, I've enjoyed, I mean, you know, Disney's making money hand over fist. Hey, mm-hmm. to return us back to our final question, maybe Disney is the thing that can uh, undo some of uh, the animosity in American politics. They're such an uh, omnipresent force in American uh, life. But uh, anyways, the Star, <laughs> the Star Wars on the small screen has been something I've been watching and enjoying lately, so... To back to your first question, though, or your first response, though, have you read the new Trail of Tears? I'm not. No, the new. Do you know who is it by? Naomi Schaefer Riley. Yeah, I've skimmed it. I have not read the whole thing in full. It's on my list of stuff to read in full. I'll tell you what I have been reading right now is, yeah. uh, in case people are interested in it, Silver's Our Savage Neighbors, Nichols' uh, Red Gentlemen and White Savages. Claudio Sant, uh, Sant is this wonderful historian, I think, from University of Georgia, who wrote a book called unworthy republic and then there is uh susan uh juster called sacred violence in early america you know the interesting thing about history compared like political scientists write as if people are walking talking uh you know mathematics books sometimes Mm -hmm. and what the thing about history is it really is far more accessible even the academic stuff and so Mm -hmm. yeah anyways but yeah so the new trail of tears you recommend uh, I don't know if I recommend it, but I'm reading it. So when you said that you're kind of like yeah. digging into this rabbit hole, 
I've been doing the same. Okay. But I'll check out the ones you said. Um, I, I think I'm looking for something a bit more in depth and academic. If you're interested in how they get to the reservation system, then you'll really like Unworthy Republic. Okay. It is, it's fascinating because it, it tracks the period of time and the dispossession of uh, American uh, Native, Native folks in the southeastern United States. And it really, it goes, it's a high level, but an interesting uh, overview of how the federal government leveraged the tools of the democratic state to kick all these Indians out. And I think that's the, the really fascinating thing is that democracy, Colin is so, so, so Tocqueville, I'm not sure how much you've read of Tocqueville, but his, he's got this, it's kind of a, he has a little bit of a weird defense of colonization. And I don't know if this is from the French Algiers or what the, I, it, the exact context escapes me now. He argued sort of loosely that colonization could be used in service of democracy, right? That how will we get people living in under oppressive regimes, democracy without a little bit of colonization? Um, but the flip side, I think, has been more true and more often, which is democracy being in use in service of colonization. And so Sant really mm-hmm. makes that point and hits at home how the democratic levers of the state were used to basically just screw over, you know, the the native folks who were who were tied to the land, who were like, you know, who had normal ass cities. Like, I mean, yeah. Anyways, I think you I think you would get a kick out of Unworthy Republic. Dr. Davis, thanks for taking the time to chat with me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Sean. This was fun. You might have noticed a couple interrelated themes that keep coming up in various ways with my guests. The first is a recognition that our institutions are underwater with the public, all approval ratings below 50%. And then what does this mean for our American democracy? I hold the view that when all government institutions are underwater, and especially enduringly so, Conditions are ripe for revolution of some sort. But this isn't my area of expertise, and I don't want to suggest something that isn't empirically or demonstrably accurate. But I want to know more, so look for an upcoming episode that dives a bit deeper into this. Another theme is the search for tangible solutions to the mire we're in, to forestall whatever fresh hell awaits America lurking behind the next electoral corner. I'm not interested in platitudes or empty solutions that have zero chance of succeeding, and it does feel like the clock is ticking, that our democracy is seriously threatened, and this November election could be the actual tipping point, after which returning America to a place of enfranchisement and rule of law that respects the autonomy and liberty of all of its peoples will become a Herculean task, if possible at all. Dr. Davis mentions that life is comfortable for enough people in the United States that it's going to be very difficult to move people to enact meaningful reform. And this is something I've been thinking about for the past couple of years. The American way of life, our culture of commodification and convenience, lulls us into a sense of complacency and of ambivalence in such a way that I think it actually threatens democracy. It threatens our American government. I have people close to me that admit that they avoid thinking about these things. They actively ignore what's happening because it seems so big, so daunting, so unchangeable, and also, frankly, inconvenient. None of us wants to imagine losing the things we've spent lifetimes building, financial security, retirement planning, physical safety, etc. But we need to remember at least two things. One, if you have these things, that's a great privilege because it's not true of most Americans. And two, there will be a time at which you will wonder if you could have done more to save the democracy we've lost. 
but then it will be too late. Nobody chooses to be born into a declining society, a deteriorating world order, and under a destabilizing government. And also, nobody promised that we would live our lives in some utopian environment without challenges and heartaches and sacrifices. Should that be our future, then our choice is to rise to that occasion or suffer the consequences. I suggest we all consider how we can save this democracy. It doesn't necessarily mean putting your body on the line. Perhaps you have time to dedicate to a cause. Perhaps you have a skill you can donate. Perhaps you have money. I want to suggest that it is your duty, if you want to enjoy the freedom of a democratic world, to make that world endure. And if you need someone to recognize what a shame this is, and how unfair it is that this is happening, and that your life may be upended as a result, then hear me, what a shame, and how unfair. Now roll up your sleeves and do something. Next week, I'm embarking on a new deep dive adventure. So let me set the stage. Over the past few months, I've been trying to understand what's going on with Republican voters, with Trump supporters, with the religious right. These people and the sentiment they hold have always been there. I get that. But the strength and vitriol, and especially the grievance held by a group of people that enjoys a tremendous and unfair institutional advantage in the U.S. electoral design, and seems to be winning at every turn, is all paradoxical to me. And I want to understand more. What am I missing? What don't I get? And so three books have been particularly instructive to me. Strangers in Their Own Land by Arlie Hochschild, The Flag and the Cross by Philip Gorski and Samuel Perry, and Go Back to Where You Came From by Sasha Polakow-Saransky. Beginning with next week's episode, and over the course of three weeks, I will be interviewing these authors in pursuit of understanding this phenomenon and these people. If we want to grasp where we've come from, how we got here, and where we might be going, These authors, these researchers, have their finger on the pulse, and they each tell a story that we ignore at our own peril. In the meantime, as always, if you have any thoughts, questions, or comments, you can email me at deepdivewithshawn at gmail.com. And you can find me on Twitter at deepdivesean and on Instagram at deepdivewithshawn. Chat soon, folks.